Please be advised this story contains adult content and graphic language. As Daniel Wozniak's defense attorney, you've said you feel you didn't receive a fair trial in Wozniak's case. Can you give us an example of what you consider an unfair ruling that prevented evidence from being introduced? Well, you know, one of the examples certainly is the Sam Her evidence. Sam Her having killed somebody in his past. Welcome to Sleuth, everyone. I'm Linda Sawyer. We're here with Scott Sanders, Daniel Wozniak's defense attorney. The trial began in late December of 2015, correct? Right. And then went into the penalty phase early January, ended mid-January, would you say, of 2016. Right. One of the most important timing elements that's going on in this case right now is that there is a trial taking place of Daniel Wozniak's ex-fiancee, Rachel Buffett. Daniel Wozniak was, in fact, convicted of the crimes he committed and confessed to. Uh, the capital case, the penalty was, in fact, death, and he is on death row at this point. But from what I've learned over the years I've been working on this case is that I feel, in many ways, Daniel would have never committed these crimes if he had not met Rachel Buffett. So with her trial coming up, I really wanted to talk to you about the case and the charges and how you feel about the likelihood that there might be a conviction here. And so if we could go over these uh, in more detail, I'd appreciate it. So the first felony charge involves Rachel Buffett lying to police about a fictitious man in a black hat. And the basis for that charge, something I know that you in court spoke about with Judge Connolly regarding an issue where you felt Prosecutor Matt Murphy was in fact committing a double argument, if you will, about the same person. And you can't move from one courtroom and say one thing and move to another courtroom and say another. Let's talk about that. Well, right. There's there's case law out there that talks about the fact that you can't make inconsistent arguments in two different cases. And so our argument to, to Judge Conley when we came back after the verdict was to say that's precisely what took place, was that he made arguments about Rachel Buffett in the preliminary hearing in Miss Buffett's case that were vastly different from what he was arguing in um, Mr. Wozniak's case. So let's just tell listeners that the preliminary hearing for Rachel Buffett was on December 13th of 2012. And in essence, that was where Matt Murphy was trying to get an indictment on accessory after the fact. So you're saying in that particular hearing, that's where Mr. Murphy really uh, painted a picture of her guilt. Correct. Right. I mean, he's he's bringing home both in terms of how he presents the witnesses at the preliminary hearing and then in terms of argument to Judge McKenna, who's the judge hearing um, about her responsibility. And he's not only saying that she's responsible as an accessory, but actually continually um, suggesting that she's responsible for something more. But yeah, he very much is trying to convince the judge that she should go to trial because She's aware of the crime, and she's trying to help um, Daniel Wozniak, but at the same time always hinting that there's something more. So do you feel like his purpose and his intent was to convince the judge that perhaps she was more involved than just an accessory? Well, I think he, I think he believes that. 
I don't. That's that's part of it. It's not so much that he was just playing lawyer there. I mean, I, I think Matt Murphy absolutely believed what he was saying in the preliminary hearing that she was more involved, that she had absolute knowledge before the death of Miss Kibuishi. I think that's what he believes. I think that's what he argued. He argued very passionately about it. He cited all sorts of information um, that he thought was supportive of it. So I don't think it was an act. I don't think it was just to get her over to a trial. I think that's what he believes. I think um, I think he has for a long, long time. And Matt Murphy was quite convincing in Rachel Buffett's preliminary hearing because the judge said, you have enough to go to trial. Yeah, I mean, he's he's pointing to all of these incidents, but this one in particular, the one he's looking at is are these contacts that take place shortly after the first crime, that they're going back, they're looking at the cell phone. He's making this point again and again to the judge that it is unbelievable that Rachel Buffett was unaware of this introduction into their household of a new cell phone. And he talks about the fact that, you know, these are folks that are struggling economically, that they're, they're paycheck to paycheck. And here he is sitting up, sitting with her um, and he suddenly has a new cell phone and the notion that he would that she'd be unaware of that is unreasonable even more so she talks to police it was I think March of 2012 when police come to issue her a subpoena she tells police in that in that exchange that she admits that she saw Daniel sitting next to her on the couch while he was texting Julie Kibuishi to lure her to Sam's apartment that night that she admits that he was on a totally different phone, that he was on a more archaic flip phone versus his fancy new phone that he had um, that obviously was way more advanced technologically. So she admits to police she saw him on a different phone, which turns out to be Sam's phone. And he argues about it compellingly. I mean, he that probably was a big argument that allowed that case to proceed um, a key argument that allowed it to proceed to trial. We're so, talking about in the preliminary yeah, hearing. Yeah, in the preliminary hearing. He's very much focused on the phone and the significance and it being absolutely unbelievable that she was unaware of that and that she wouldn't have asked questions and things wouldn't have followed from that. Earlier today, I learned a new piece of evidence that was shared to me in an interview I will air in full on a future episode that uh, Rachel Buffett had actually told a gentleman by the name of Daniel Hulkyard, who was a friend of Dan Wozniak's and would visit him often when he was waiting for his trial in Men's County Jail, she said to Daniel Hulkyard that she had sent a Facebook message to Julie Kibuishi at 11.10 that night, the night that she was murdered, basically saying, we'll get together after the wedding and we'll catch up and we'll share some summer sunshine together at the pool. And she told Daniel Hulkyard that Daniel Wozniak was standing right behind her when she sent that email. Well, that email was part of, you know, that email was part of kind of the package of evidence. And then the question just became, became, and it was an important one, you know, where were people located at the time? And again, it was a very oddly timed um, email that she was sending. And what Daniel Hulkyard seems to be insinuating is because Rachel slipped and told him that Dan Wozniak was over her shoulder when she sent this message to Julie so Daniel Hulkyard suggests that Dan and Rachel must have been in cahoots together. Yet Rachel never told police Dan was by her side. She said she was in bed alone on her laptop when she sent that message. I thought that was a very interesting telling 
piece of evidence that I hadn't learned before today. Daniel Halkyard shares with us that moment. Rachel told me in no certain terms, you know, the night that that lady was killed, I was on an email to her and I felt so suspicious and scared because Daniel was standing right behind me. And I about dropped my jaw, Linda. I said, you what? She says, yeah, that was so spooky. I looked at her mom and her mom just clammed up real quick. And I told her in our little talk, I said, you had no idea what was going on? Oh, I had no idea. You had no idea? And then three sentences later, she says what she said. And I don't even think she knew what she said. It was basically an alibi email is, is how I felt when mm-hmm. I read it. Oh, exactly. But then when she told me that, I haven't told anybody in the legal world what I just told you about that conversation. I haven't. And I will tell you because I know what you want to do with this, the truth behind this. And remember, Rachel's sending this message to Julie on her Facebook at 11.10, Friday night of the murders. It makes you wonder, was this an alibi message to Julie? I mean, it was a really nice message. And could one possibly imagine that someone would be diabolical enough to send such a sweet message and then 50 minutes later be part of a plan to murder Julie? Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, without talking to him directly and hearing it all... But it certainly makes sense. It certainly fits sort of. We know that this email went out, this unusual, unusually timed email. So here adds another element that potentially she's acknowledged to someone else that Dan's nearby at the time. So I want to be clear with our listeners what you meant when you uh, spoke in court about this double argument of Matt Murphy's. The preliminary hearing He really framed her as not only an accessory, but in fact, perhaps an accomplice in these murders. And he was very passionate and 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 very convincing in his argument about her role, which we believe he believes as well as the Costa Mesa police. But then in the actual trial of Daniel Wozniak, he sort of shifted quite a bit. Right. And so let's talk about that shift and 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 how he presented Rachel to the jurors. We can go into more about what happens at the trial, but obviously it's kind of a general theme. At trial, Mr. Murphy wants to diminish her responsibility. And at every turn from the beginning of the trial, he is saying things in his opening statement like, Daniel Wozniak lied to Rachel Buffett. And he's putting that in a group of victims. He, you know, he puts his brother in that list. So he wants to separate... Rachel Buffett and other people from any level of culpability, because I think quite obviously he thinks the more culpable um, Rachel Buffett is, the less likely he is to get a death verdict. And I think that's kind of at the core of it. He wants the death penalty. And I, you know, obviously our argument is that he wanted it way too much and he did some things that didn't match with what he was doing at the preliminary hearing. And, you know, just for people who don't know, a preliminary hearing is where it's like a grand jury proceeding, except you're not speaking to a group of members of the public. You're speaking to a single judge who's making that call. And that's what's happening in Rachel Buffett's case. She's she's before a judge named Judge McKino, um, well-respected judge in the community. And Judge McKino is asking questions at some point about the case. I mean, he's very thoughtful and he's asking, he's kind of pressing and probing about why she had more responsibility. So he comes back to the um, subject of Rachel Buffett and why she's responsible. And he's telling Judge McKenna, we have a situation here where where these people are living together. They're engaged to be married. 
They're both unemployed. They have the same financial pressures. They're both in the process of eviction. They've been described by various various friends as being very close. They're together all the time. He's building the argument for accessory, but it also sounds very much like the argument for murder. If he was building an argument for accomplice or a partner in the planning and the execution, accomplice is the equivalent of a murder charge. Right. That's right. So you you don't have to be the person who strikes the death blow. If you assist in some way to have that crime take place, you're treated the same way under the law. So to the extent, as we argued, that Rachel Buffett was reasonably taking steps that would have encouraged Dan push Dan to act at a time when he didn't want to. You know, we argue, obviously, in terms of the second crime, that he's despondent before that, and she doesn't really care, uh, and she's pushing, and that's what logic says. So when I'm making closing argument, and I'm actually making this argument that the prosecution agrees with me, and he's objecting to it and stating that I'm misstating his argument, and he was right. I was misstating his argument in my case, because I was stating his argument in Rachel Buffett's case. In the preliminary right. hearing. And so that's the problem. That's not supposed to happen. You don't get to flip around because you'd like to have the death penalty on a man. The rules are the rules. Yeah, right? the rules are the rules. And it's just, you know, that rule is based in common sense logic about what's right. And let's give our listeners a clear sense of just how he shifted in the trial of Daniel Wozniak, how he was portraying her in that trial. Well, you know... It was pretty stunning. I mean, here we are in the trial, and he is presenting her as a victim. One of the most dramatic things that he did was to take his argument about what took place outside the residence. So let let me take the listeners through that moment, just so they understand the scene. When Detective Everett shows up in front of Rachel's brother, Noah Buffett's apartment, when he walks in, he doesn't realize it's an apartment. He thinks it's a storefront. He walks in, and there's Daniel sitting on the couch. And Daniel asks, can we please move outside to to talk? And at that point, Daniel's telling the story about how the last person he saw Sam Hare with was this guy in a black hat. Later that night, Costa Mesa police arrest Dan Wozniak for accessory to murder because they still believe Dan is hiding and helping Sam Hare. So let's listen now as Daniel is questioned by detectives and hear what Daniel has to say about the mysterious man in the black hat. I feared that I was the last person to see him. So what I had told everyone was because the last person to even know that I knew that I was with Sam was my wife. And the last time that she saw him and I saw him was 2.30, 3 o'clock on Friday. So I went to live with that story and then I made up this mystery person just hoping that that would you know, take the blame off of me. Okay. So I, I made up this guy with a white, a white guy scuffle and a black baseball cap. That was, he doesn't exist. That's a lie. That's a 100% proof lie. Okay. I apologize for that. He does admit to police that he made up that man. He was an imaginary person. So go back to that Wednesday before he's arrested for anything. And Rachel pops out of the apartment and walks over to the detective and to Daniel. And she repeats the same story that Daniel was telling them at the time. And so that's what Matt Murphy's referring to, right? Right. And you have to, it's, I mean, I, I, I laugh, but I, it's none of it's funny because you think about what he then turns around and does in our trial. He then puts on Detective Everett and he presents 
essentially the defense. And this is fast forward now, now December moving, 2015. Yeah, now we're in the trial. Of Daniel Wozniak. And here comes Matt Murphy, and he wants this event viewed completely differently. In fact, if you look at what he's doing, he's saying we're being unfair to Rachel Buffett to draw the same interpretation that he argued to Judge McKino. Do you remember the line he said? He said, maybe she was leaning in in the door and she was overhearing what Daniel said, so she just repeated what her fiancé was saying to police. That is what Matt Murphy said to the jurors. And he did, and he set that up through questioning with Everett. He asked Everett, he he being Murphy, asked Everett, and during your interview with her, I believe you testified she echoed the same lie, for lack of a better term, that there was a third individual with Mr. Wozniak and Mr. Hur on the day that Mr. Hur went missing, right? Answer, yes. This is Everett saying yes. So how far outside the door of the residence do you think you were when you engaged in that conversation with Daniel Wozniak? Answer, again, Everett, maybe five or six feet question okay so big picture now as an investigator and you get a potential suspect you step outside and daniel wozniak tells you the story including the lie about the third individual yes and then a few minutes later rachel comes out and tells you the same lie that's the question ever says yes now as a police officer it could be that rachel has been involved in this conspiracy maybe even planned the whole thing and maybe this whole murder that's one possibility or that's one realm of possibility. Answer, yes. Or it could be that she was listening on the other side of the door, right? Yes. It could have been that sort either way, right? Under under that piece of evidence. Yes. Murphy says to Everett, you're familiar with the term tie goes to the runner. So here you have him suggesting that in fact the exact same argument that he made at the preliminary hearing is faulty. He's uh, he's saying that what we argued to Judge McKino really wasn't fair because the tie should go to the runner. And he doesn't end it there. He says, so in other words, when you have two pieces of evidence, one that points toward innocence and one that points toward guilt as a police officer, you've got to kind of give the benefit of the doubt, right? Answer Everett, Yes. So you can imagine us sitting in the courtroom, knowing what happened in the prior hearing and realizing this is how far he's going to go. Now, they're not in a plot together. Everything that I just talked about in terms of um, what they pressed Judge McKino to believe. His earlier argument. His earlier argument that you have to believe this. This is the only logical interpretation that they're in. Of her role. He says this is our cleanest argument. Obviously, they plotted this. He calls it a plot. Now it's not a plot. Now it may have just been a very good listener who's sitting at the door who then decided, okay, I'm going to match the stories to help my um, my loved one get out of harm's way. Um, but nothing in terms of an intention to do anything further or that she had knowledge before. That's the really bad thing, right? He's saying, look, she really may not have had any knowledge of this crime before. You cannot reconcile that. There's no way you can reconcile that with what he did at the preliminary hearing. Um, in the Buffett case. It's similar to Matt Murphy's statements that he's made in the past regarding Rachel Buffett, where he said she just might have to be considered collateral damage. Yeah, but as horrifying as it is, and it is, it's exactly what took place here. He decided, look, Rachel Buffett is looking at a few years in prison on a good day for them. Does he want any chance 
just even the slimmest chance of reducing the possibility that he gets a death verdict. So he's sitting here worried that if the jury believes that somehow Rachel Buffett may have been involved and is not going to be held responsible for the higher crime, which we argue she was involved with. Which is murder. Which is murder. He thinks jury may go, this isn't quite fair. So what does he do? He pushes back on any notion, even a semblance of a, of a notion that it's fair. We're the ones who are being unfair now. That's the amazing thing. In the trial, we're the unfair ones because we're suggesting Rachel Buffett may have more involvement, which is exactly what he said which, at the preliminary hearing. Yeah, You're just reiterating no. what he said earlier in 2012 at her preliminary yeah. hearing. But he doesn't like those arguments anymore because those arguments are the type of arguments that keep someone from getting death. If all of a sudden the jury, if we both spoke the same way in that closing, what if he had said exactly what he had said in that preliminary hearing, how powerful that would have been? Mr. Sanders is right. All of these things that he's saying are absolutely right. She wasn't coincidentally sitting next to the door. She did know everything. She did have the phone in sight. She knew about the phone and all of this happened at an earlier point. He knows that verdict may have turned out differently. So it's Rachel's own words it's her lies that are the blueprint to the truth. Rachel Buffett tells the Costa Mesa police that when Dan came back with the first installment of money that they owed Chris Williams for helping them stave off the eviction, Rachel tells police that the Friday afternoon of the murders, Daniel came back with the $400 and he possibly gave it to Sam or the loan sharks outside their apartment. But she was sitting there at the table. Chris Williams tells me in an interview that she was right there when Dan gave Chris Williams the money. In fact, Chris Williams tells me that he specifically asked them if they had any food money. And Dan said, that's all we have, pointing to the money that he just handed to him. And so Chris decides to give them a 20. He passes that 20 across the table so that they had some food money. He left that apartment so quickly. There was just this weird energy, this this darkness that was sort of looming in the apartment. So he said he couldn't get out of there fast enough. And then he then he's on a call with Rachel within minutes, and she's trying to lure him back, telling him that he dropped a 20. And at that point, he said, is, is this about the money? Because... I wanted you to have that for food. Is is this about the money that you want me to come back to talk to you about? And she said, no, it's something else I need to talk to you about. And it was then that he said every bone in his body just shook because he had no idea at that point why she wanted him there, but she he just didn't have a good feeling about it. So were Rachel and Dan perhaps worried because Chris Williams was the only witness who saw Dan leave alone with Sam because there really was no third person in a black hat? One of the other statements that Matt Murphy made to jurors during Dan Wozniak's trial was his portrayal of Rachel Buffett as almost a hero in this case because if it wasn't for her, he says, they wouldn't have had this cornucopia of evidence to accuse and convict Daniel for these murders. And that just wasn't true. Violet Randolph, who was a neighbor and a friend who actually Rachel ended up living with for quite some time after the murders, 
She was in that car, and when they left the Wozniak home after Rachel came and spoke to Daryl Wozniak, Daniel's father, she told him that he was arrested and tried to take him through what had happened. They left there, and Tim Wozniak and Lisa Golich, his girlfriend at the time, showed up, and Rachel went over to the car, and he's sharing with her that he has a gun and he has all this other evidence And she's like putting her hands up in her ears, like, I don't want to hear this, whatever. And when she got back into the car, Violet basically said, like, what's going on? He has evidence. She said, yes. He said he has a gun. And she said, you're going to bring that to police, right? And Rachel said, no. And Violet said, if you don't, I'm going to, because that gun's going to disappear. And she picked up her cell phone, as she tells me, and she calls her mother to get Jose Morales' number, at which point... That's the very moment that Dan calls in from the holding cell. I just talked to Tim, and I need to make a phone call to the detective now. Why? Because Tim's involved. Because of what? Or I need to call the detective first because I need to call him and let him know before they catch me on this recording device because it looks like I'm not trying to tell him right away. Tim says he has evidence with them, or, or he knew where it was or something. Then I'm doomed. What? Tim said that? Yeah. Do you know that Tim had some evidence? Yeah. Scott, what did you think about the jailhouse calls between Dan and Rachel when you heard them for the first time? She's not expecting this call. Right. And as the call goes, here comes Dan and he's worried. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. Well, this is, this is ridiculous and I have to go tell the detective no, the truth. No, baby, baby, um, Tim, Tim did speak up. Only to me so far. And it was in passing. I said, I'm going to the police station right now. Danny's been arrested. And he's, he starts freaking out. And he was really frantic. And he said something. And something slipped that he had evidence. So I have to... No, I, don't, I was, don't, 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 don't. That can't be found. No, babe, I'm going to do it. I needed no, to pull baby. over to the Arco so I could get listen the phone me. number for listen the detective. Me. Out listen, to me. listen to me. No. no. What? Trust me, please. You realize they're recording this phone conversation anyways. If you look at what she's doing, she's not planning, when she's driving down the street, she is not planning to call the police. There is no chance in the world. And then she realizes Dan is unraveling and we're on a recorded conversation and she has this interesting moment where she says, I need to call the detective right now. What do you mean? Didn't you need to call the detective the moment you took this evidence? So that that's one of the tells. There's about five or six tells in there. If you look at it closely, you can see she was hoping just to do whatever she was going to do. Well, it's a performance for Violet, yeah. too. I mean, the girl was sitting in the passenger seat saying to Rachel, if you don't call Detective Morales, I will. That's right. And so she's driving. All of a sudden, Dan is doing what he's doing and she needs to perform for Violet. She needs to perform for what she knows are the police listening. And she points that out. Dan, you're an idiot. The police are listening to this conversation, and I've got to make sure I assist the police. Well, I don't know what that is. I thought it was a murder weapon. 
I don't know what you're talking about, other evidence. I don't know what Tim has mm -hmm. besides that. Tim said he had a murder weapon. Yeah, he does. You realize they're recording this phone conversation anyways. I need to call the detective first because I need to call him and let him know before they catch me on this recording device because it looks like I'm not trying to tell him right away. And her mind is twirling, going, if I don't say this soon, I'm going to be in big trouble. So that's exactly what Tim told me, so I'm going to go tell the detective now. So so she's doing this at, in steps because her brain is flying. She's saying to herself, they're going to know in a millisecond that I'm deeply involved in this. So, I'm, so I better say something. Okay. Okay. What do you want me to do? Then I don't want you to tell the detective anything, and I don't want Tim involved like that. I mean, now I'm now I'm dead. Now I'm really dead. Baby, you're already dead. When you deconstruct it and kind of look at it closely, you can see what she's doing, and she does this kind of throughout. You know, she's trying to reel Dan back, even after he says, "I did it." There's no way back. They're thinking that you premeditated a murder of both of your friends because you were telling me beforehand that you had a class that you knew you didn't have. You were already making an excuse and an alibi. Do you see what I'm saying? Like I said, babe, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm really done. Um, Wait, what are we... I, I was trying to cover it up, and now I'm going away for life. It necessarily means that when that call took place on the 27th, she knew he was involved. She was plotting with him. And it means the whole call is a lie. It's well done. It's on a kind of an amateurish level, right? You know, kind of low-level theater. Babe, why on earth would you try and cover for him? Because we needed the money. No, we never need money. We need to be good people and just have each other. I'm sorry. It's well done for a minute unless you look at it pretty closely. And Murphy knows that. That phone call had to be completely fabricated. Baby, when did, when did we fall asleep last night and where were you? When did you leave last, or not last night, but that Friday night? Friday night, we got home probably around, I don't know, 11.30 midnight. Yeah, remember that. What did we do? Did anyone come over? I don't remember. Or did we just crash? Did I crash? We crashed. We took a shower together. Uh-huh. We were watching Family Guy and Men in Black. Wait, wait, wait. I, I can't. We were watching Men in Black and Family Guy. I can Guy. hardly hear you on this phone, babe. Speak a little bit louder. We were what about Men somebody? in Black and Family Guy. Okay. That night. Okay. So when did you go over and meet Sam, and when did you help Sam? Saturday morning. Saturday morning. She is pretending as she's going as if she knows nothing. And then when Dan Wozniak switches and says, I've got to tell you the truth about what happened, you can hear it. I mean, you can kind of hear what she's doing. And at the very end of that tape, she tries to pull him back one last time. Are you sure you're not taking the blame for someone else? She tries to recover him from himself. Babe, are you trying to cover for somebody? Me. Babe, um, listen to me. I'm, I'm going to go do something right now. And you're not going to see me for the rest of your life. Do you understand that? No. No. 
I have to tell the truth on what I did. And I think you now know what it is. And it's bad. Imagine the worst, and that's what I did. Okay, well... <laughs> Do you want to tell me first, or are you going to go tell them? If you tell them, can you call me back and tell me to my face? Can you come down you to the probably station? Tell them first? Can you come down to the station right now? Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm coming down to the station right now. How far away are okay, you? Okay, just wait, because you? you should tell them first, but I want to hear it from you. It's her, though. I mean, you talk about who's worse there. He's going, I'm done. I'm, you know, I'm not, there's no coming back from this. And she's thinking to herself, if you don't come back from this, you may take us both down. That's what she's doing very clearly. And I'm not saying anything other than what Matt Murphy would have said in 2012 in the preliminary hearing. We would have sounded almost identical. We just don't now because in 2016, he wanted a death verdict very badly. So he decided it was okay to switch his theories. That's what he did. It was surprising how Matt Murphy characterized Rachel Buffett during Dan Wozniak's trial. Yes, but only because you knew more. If you don't know more, and I'm making arguments that are being stopped, and the... and You're right. Right. You don't, you don't know. I don't blame the jury for not getting what he was doing to them. I and the don't. rest of the media didn't have a word to say about it because they just didn't know it to the yeah. detail. And this is, you know, this is the difficulty sometimes in a trial. It's... You've got to have so much information to really get it. And really what he was starting to do there was kind of beyond the pale. It wasn't something that even anybody would envision and think back at the time. What else? What was he saying before? But, you know, after the trial, we get a chance to go to the judge and we did our motion. And and tell us about his ruling and how you felt about it. Well, you know, the ruling is only memorable to the extent we lost. I don't remember what he said specifically, and I don't think he committed a lot of writing to it other than to say, um, we lose. And so I'm not going to tell you that it's surprising that we lost. And, and I'm not saying that because I think we should have lost. We shouldn't have. I just, we didn't have a lot of success in litigation in that courtroom. We weren't successful here. And, you know, I've second guessed all sorts of things. That's just the nature of the beast. But I'm also still angry because there wasn't complete truth in that courtroom. I don't sit here trusting that we've gotten everything. There's no reason to. They don't have a history of disclosure. It's not going to surprise me if 10 years, 20 years down the road, something gets found out in addition to all the things you've found out. And that's, that's a big pro- this had a big problem with this um, process here. It's just, I have no faith whatsoever. The, the tricks that were pulled here, the notion like, I found all of the tricks, I don't think so. I don't have, I don't have that kind of faith in myself. I, you know, the notion that Rachel Buffett was protecting him is insanity and that this was her goal. I can't even believe someone's going to say that in the courtroom just because it's going to help them get a win. None of this has to do with protecting Dan Wozniak. She's done with Dan Wozniak. She thinks Dan Wozniak's done. This is about protecting her. And it makes sense. I remember that you revealed in court a conversation that Rachel had with police during those early morning hours, after police arrested Dan, they had brought her in for questioning. It was there she mentions how he really wasn't a great lover, and she wasn't over the moon about him, and he, she even said he wasn't well endowed down below. She's saying all these things, and she's supposed to marry this guy the next day? It just seemed like she was done with him then. I mean, that, there's a level of cruelty in that. I mean, it's not the cruelty, obviously. You know, I 
I want to make it clear. I mean, I, I represented Dan and then believe very deeply that he should not have gotten the death penalty. You know, I don't think it was fair. I don't think the trial was fair. I don't think anything about this process was fair whatsoever. And I don't think we have all the evidence on the case. Why do you feel Daniel Wozniak didn't deserve the death penalty? Well, look, the first place any pursuit of death should start with is fairness. It just should be a fair process. You shouldn't have a prosecutor arguing two different theories to get death. All, I mean, I have a lot of evidentiary issues, things that I think should have come in as evidence, but there are a lot of things that I thought um, made this whole process um, unfair. Are you referring to Sam's past? Um, that's that's one of them. Um, For our listeners, Sam Hare at one point in his life was charged with murder and he was acquitted. I think his defense lawyer did a great job and they were able to keep out all of the key evidence and kind of a unique theory and should be commended for that. But in the standard that's used in most cases, and what I think is the legal standard, once the prosecutor took certain steps in our litigation, we should have had the right to introduce that evidence. And the way they, the prosecution chose to kind of present Mr. Her, which they didn't have to do. They went further in kind of presenting him as a solid citizen. We had the right to, to answer that. But there's all sorts of other places, including, you know, what we've been focusing on today. You know, if I look at all of that, I keep coming back to the same spot. Too often in this county, evidence hasn't been turned over. And um, I look at this and wonder what else wasn't turned over. And I, don't, I think it's reasonable. If you have a prosecutor that's making the type of arguments he's making, why on earth would I believe he? it's, it's beyond him to just keep some evidence that he thinks um, might be beneficial to us? And what, I know you talked about how you felt for the Daniel Wozniak trial, you felt that in many cases it wasn't a fair trial. What was the most egregious example of where you thought you did not get a, a fair break well, you know, one of the examples certainly is the Sam Her evidence. I mean, we thought that we, the interesting thing was we didn't anticipate getting into that because we thought the prosecutor was going to actually limit himself. And, and you can do that because basically what the prosecutor's option is, is to put on evidence about his impact on human lives. So you could put on people and talk about how sad it was. And that wouldn't have allowed us, arguably, to get into this next spot, which is, um, Samer having killed somebody in his past. Charged with it. Well. Right. I mean, he's charged with that crime yeah, of I mean, murder. That, that's your, you know, that's your No, I mean, he was. He was charged, he was but charged. he was acquitted. Right. And I'm, and I appreciate the process, but I don't. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I appreciate the process, but I don't, I don't agree that he didn't kill. I, you know, I'm just, the evidence doesn't point to that. It's just the evidence all got kept back. I mean, he confessed in statements. The statements just didn't get introduced. I know that this was an important point for Scott, that he did not win the argument of introducing Sam's past in the Dan Wozniak trial. And although the jurors didn't have a chance to hear the facts, I thought my listeners deserved to know what happened in Sam's past when he was in fact charged with murder. And so I spoke at length with retired Sergeant Gilbert Anderson, who was the lead detective on Sam's murder case. And suffice to say that there were 18 defendants that were charged with the murder of Byron Benito, who was an MMS 
gang member. And he was, in fact, the victim that was lured, as Sergeant Anderson says, he was lured by his best friend at the time, Sam Hare. And Sam brought him to an undisclosed location where rival gang members from the Brown Familia family were waiting to attack Byron. And Sam, at that time, was growing increasingly frustrated with his friend Byron. Byron was acting like a bully in many instances, beating up members of the Brown Familia gang for no apparent reason. And so Sam was starting to distance himself. We may never know with absolute certainty if Sam believed that the Brown Familia gang intended to murder Byron or simply wanted to rough him up, give him a scare. And everyone that knew Sam would tell me he would never run away from a fight, which is why Sam himself was injured from the attack. Eventually, Byron Benito did pass away from his injuries, and 18 people stood charged with that murder. Six of them, including Sam, were acquitted. And the reason that Sam Hare was acquitted of these charges were because there was a technicality that the judge at the time felt there was a illegal, as he called it, arrest after a traffic stop. The police had stopped Sam because they saw some scooters in his car. And at the time, a lot of scooters were being stolen. And so the actual traffic stop, the judge said was was fine. It was the It was the arrest afterwards that the judge felt was far-reaching. So therefore, anything after the arrest was thrown out, and that included Sam's confession. He, He was haunted by this. It was his friend. I think he felt bad. I think in many ways he was self medicating because he felt so bad. But he did, I guess after many hours with the sergeant, he did finally confess to his role. And Steve Hare told me that While he and Sam's attorney that Steve hired were waiting outside the interrogation room, for whatever reason, police did not allow the attorney access to Sam. I don't know if it was because Sam didn't ask for an attorney, but that is what Steve Hare had mentioned to me. And ultimately, because that confession was thrown out, Sam was acquitted of all charges. And I just think it's important to mention that that same officer, the same sergeant that I spoke to, he said that he wanted it to be clear that Sam never went back to a life of crime. Sam, you know, from there really turned his life around, joined the army, and he he, ne- he never looked back and tried to continue on that path that was going to only lead him to prison at some point. Sam's past was something that he used as a litmus test often because he, he would share this past with, with people that he barely knew at times. In fact, Sam's fiancé at the time had told me in a later interview that, that he had this paperwork that he would show people and they would read it and and they would see what his past was about and, and what he had been through. And if they reacted in a way that they said, well, you know what, you're our guy, you're our friend, and we're not holding that against you, then he, he would become friends with that person. Or if they were turned off by what they read, 
then he knew that they would never be real friends. So he did the same thing with Daniel and Rachel. And this happened a weekend before the murders. Daniel had been arrested by the Costa Mesa police, ironically, for an outstanding DUI warrant. And he was the lead in a musical called Nine at the time. And so Rachel was scrambling to get his bail money raised because he he was the lead and they weren't going to be able to perform the next night if she couldn't get him out of jail. So Dave Barnhart and John Randolph, friends of theirs and neighbors at the Camden Martinique, called around to try to raise the bail money. And one of those people that they called was Sam Hare. But he refused to give money. I don't know them very well, and I have no interest in participating in this dude's bail money. Sam's friend, Ruben Minacho, recalls the story. Sam received a phone call from uh, Dave. Dave, and Dave was... I Obviously, I wasn't listening to the conversation, but after they were done talking, Sam told me about what the conversation was about. Essentially, Dave was asking for money to bail... Dan out of, out of jail. And I said, no, why would you? Why are they even calling you to ask, you know, to ask you for money? That doesn't seem fair. Do you even know this guy that well? And he said, oh, yeah, he's a friend. And I know that because if he would have been a friend friend, then he would have hung out with us a lot more often. And that's the reason why I say that. So, and I, I advise Sam to not to give him the money. I don't actually remember if he did or not. Hopefully he didn't. So that's, yeah. Um, But yeah, that was it. So that upset them because, in fact, Dave Barnhart said to Rachel, and he's he's the one guy that has more money than all of us. I guess Rachel told Dan that Sam did not contribute. And when they saw Sam, because eventually Rachel was able to raise the money and Dan got out of jail the next morning. And that afternoon they went to the hot tub and that's where Sam was. And Sam, you know, responded to a complaint that Dan was making, saying, I never want to go to jail again. That was a horrible experience. It was awful. I can't even believe I made it through the night. And basically, Sam was like, you know, you got to be kidding me, dude. Like, I was I was sitting in the Los Angeles County Men's Jail for two years waiting for my trial when I was charged with murder. At that moment, Dan and Rachel found out this past of where Sam was in fact himself once a defendant being charged with murder. So that's what ultimately put the target on his back. That's why they had used that past. They kept referring to that past when when Dan was first arrested by Costa Mesa police. So that, in essence, is the story of Sam Hare's past and why it plays a relevant role in this case. In the end, I've always felt that Prosecutor Matt Murphy had a far better case for accomplice or murder charges rather than the accessory charges that Rachel now faces. I want to thank you, Scott Sanders, for your time today, and we look forward to having you back next week for all your legal observations on Rachel Buffett's trial proceedings. Thanks very much for the opportunity. On the next episode of Sleuth, we go straight to Santa Ana Superior Court for our gavel-to-gavel coverage of the trial we've been waiting for. It's the state of California versus Rachel Buffett. So tune into Sleuth 
and you won't miss a moment of the witness testimony. If you enjoyed this episode of Sleuth, share it with a friend and be sure to leave a rating or review. Follow Sleuth on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode.